Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'm going to be your host today. On the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices for leading teams, for driving and executing strategy, and other best practices as it relates to leadership and team development. And our goal here on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and executable tips that you can use right away to support the growth of your organization or your business. So if you enjoy today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on YouTube for other bonus content on strategy and leadership, or, and you can join in on the conversation on Facebook in the strategy and leadership community. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Taylor here. Today, I am joined by Gunny Scarfo, who is the co-founder of Nonfiction Research. Gunny, how are you today? Great. How are you doing? Rocking and rolling. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, As you know, I'm going to ask you for your background, so why don't we get right into it. Tell our listeners who you are and what jazzes you up about life. Yeah, (laughs) as big of a question as one could possibly pose. Um, Yeah, I'm the founder of Nonfiction Research, uh, along with Ben Zeidler, who was the global head of CPG research at Scott Galloway's firm, L2, before he was here. And uh, my background has always been in strategy, uh, coming up through digital agencies, one of which where I joined the firm, uh, eventually became head of strategy, but we kept getting sold to bigger and bigger other agencies. And I, I joke that I sat in one seat for like eight years while uh, they just changed the sign above the door. Uh, that agency ended up as part of Accenture Interactive, which is the biggest digital agency on the planet. Um, and then I was head of strategy at Vice Media's digital agency um, as well before nonfiction. But throughout that run, I worked really closely with Ben and our focus the whole time was on the part of strategy that has to do with uh, uncovering useful insights from human beings. <laughs> uh, there are many parts of strategy and uh, insights is, is only one of them. The specific uh, focus or obsession that we had was really the parts of people's lives that they might not normally talk about to their friends and certainly not to a market researcher. For anyone who's ever done any form of market research, you know no one's going to stop you in the middle of the sentence and say, oh, hold on, let me get my diary so that I can uh, truly show you my soul and who I really am. You don't get that sort of thing. And so it's really incumbent upon uh, someone who's looking for insights to get at that layer of humanity that's underneath what people normally talk about. And so when we were founding non-research, we just wanted to take a much more rogue approach to getting to people's sort of uncensored lives and truths. So um, I think we form a lot more intimate connections in uh, in our relationships with people. And we certainly go wherever we need to go. So we've been unchaperoned inside of a prison. We've been undercover. We've spent time with male and female escorts to understand intimacy in America. We've built our own software programs from scratch to understand America's behavior with Spotify playlists that uh, uh, are out there. And so our focus is really on like the uncensored part of market research. We've been fortunate in that I think corporate America is, is hungry for a new type of research that feels like it's 
a little bit more in the lifeblood of the people that you're actually studying. And so our clients include Disney, AIG, Viacom, some large pharmaceutical companies, uh, some really good nonprofits. And our work's been picked up by Axios, MSNBC, Fox News. How about that? MSNBC and Fox News. Uh, proud of that. <laughs> um, and so forth. So um, th- that's really like the, the focus of, of what we do. And we're uh, single-mindedly obsessed about doing that one thing really well. Cool. So I think that like what I hear in that is really just like uncovering like beyond the, the layers of what is, is superficial, but not said or not maybe as explicitly said to see like what's really important to get those like level of insight at a whole different level of impact that will ultimately presumably lead to better decision making, greater output. But I also think that there's a, a care and and a, a, a interest in like the lives of the actual people because it's easy to make a deck it's easy to make a report but i assert that based on your approach that you're actually really trying to understand how this is going to like impact people on a granular level if you're going to the trouble of getting their juice then you want to make it that level of impact is that fair to say some of the work that we produce is stuff that we fund and do ourselves there's no client behind it and stuff that we publish for the greater good. And a lot of our work is client work, but regardless of whether we're working for a client or publishing stuff ourselves, in a way we think of ourselves as working for not the client or our own good press, but working for the people that we're studying. And that's crucial to how we look at it. So maybe a a good example of that would be Uh, One of the better known pieces that we've written is called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans uh, and the Future of Financial Services. And if you Google, uh, you will find eight gazillion reports called The Future of Financial Services. But most of them start from the perspective of a company or an industry or fintech or banks or whatever it might be. And that's fine. You know, there's a lot of uh, valuable stuff in those reports. But we wanted to approach it from the point of view of human beings. And so we spent time talking to, including the quantitative part, thousands of Americans about money, not about financial services, but about money in your life. And uh, the, the statistic that got picked up the most in the national media from our research, we, talked to, we asked people, have you ever cried because you didn't have enough money at the time? That's a really deep and personal question. And 52% of Americans responded that they had. When you think of your friends, your your coworkers, uh, that half of them behind closed doors in a way that they would never admit to you have cried because they didn't have enough money at the time. That's something heavy. And that's certainly a a place to start. And even when you segment out that data, when you look at people who make over $200,000 a year, which is for most people an astronomical sum of money, still 41% uh, had cried at one point in their life about not having enough money at the time. And so we talked to people about shopping addiction. We talked to people about like opportunities that they've had or that they've missed. We talked about the impact of Instagram and other social media platforms on their own happiness and their spending and what they think they should be spending. We, We really wanted outside perspectives that would shake things up. So we hunted down and befriended two convicted bank robbers 
and we asked them, how would you reform retail banking or the financial services industry to make it more for the people? And so, you know, we talked about why they robbed banks and, and for, for both of them, there's this like animus towards the financial services industry. And then we talked to bank CEOs about what they had said. What came out of all of it was that we identified a handful of needs that when you talk to everyday people, they have these needs about money, but no one in the mainstream financial services community is actually responding to those needs and the people are willing to pay for it. And so that is, I tell you that story because it's, it's a good encapsulation of our work and our approach and what we think, not just for us, but we think research needs to be in general. It's about getting close to people and emotions and circumstances and the things that actually drive purchase behavior or behavior in general. And then because you understand the industry and now you understand the depth of people on a human level, you can start to build the bridge as to how the companies can actually profit by responding to these deeper needs. And when you do that, you end up with something that just looks a lot like innovation, <laughs> but you know, you don't start by hunting innovation. You start by trying to understand people on a deeper level. So lots to unpack there. It, it, it sounds like, again, building on that curiosity, and the curiosity is sort of the word I took from that, but beyond, there's like a correlation, causation around all of that too. There's also asking questions that people aren't thinking of asking, but I don't think it's the nature of the asking of the questions. I think it's the approach of the outcome. So you know, taking it into practical sense, if you're a CEO, if you're a middle manager, or if you're just starting, it's like, what are you asking the question for? You're asking the question because you want to sound smart. Is it because you have to ask a question? And where I see a lot of failings is people do like surveys, like I asked, I asked, I asked, but it's like, are you really asking? And why are you asking that question, which goes into like survey design and your approach? And I think where I see a takeaway is the like really getting clear on saying, Hey, are you trying to ask a question to better understand the needs, which we use sort of the value proposition canvas. It's like you have problem solvers, you have pains and gains that you can solve for people and fix. So what you guys took is just like what I consider the value proposition canvas, broke it down, asked the right questions to understand what are your pains, what are the gains that you want, and then use that so actually that you can inform decision, which as you aptly put, leads innovation. If you're a business owner, it's don't build shit that people don't want. So you guys are actually going to that level going there. So is that, I mean, that sounds like what yeah. you're doing and it sounds like- In fact, you said a couple of things that uh, were not just spot on, but I found inspiring in there. And the in terms of the takeaways that you were mentioning, I think there's at least one takeaway for someone who's requesting research, which might be a, a boss or a different department or a client, and a couple of takeaways for people who are doing the research. And the biggest one for someone who's requesting the research is exactly what you were saying, is, is about paying more attention to the question you're asking than anything. So at nonfiction, we call it the burning question that is at the heart of every project. And we spend dumb amounts of time trying to get that burning question right. And if there's not a burning question that we think that we can answer, that will is something that the requester, in our case, usually the client, admits that they don't know and that if they knew the answer could actually have a serious impact on their business. Uh, if there's no burning question, there's nothing for us to do. Um, and we turn down research all the time 
not out of some uh, nobility or because we're too cool, but because it's, it's going to lead to mediocre work. I think most of the mediocre insights that you see in business come from not bad researchers or faulty techniques or you need an edgier technique. It's just the question itself was destined to lead you to mediocrity, you know, like. So I just want to jump in there, which I find cool about your approach is that if you think of any, again, we've, we've interviewed some marketers and, and design who talk about creative. So what I hear, and based on your background, is that not only do you have the strategy piece, you actually apply creative to your questioning, which then is the like, hey, like I need to do good work. It's not just, hey, check the box of getting research. It's like, I actually need to know that this research is going to have that like 10x That's impact, it. for lack of a better word. That's it. And we've got a... Uh... I won't bore you with all of the different uh, parts of it, but we have a litmus test that we put to every question, you know, and like the, I'll just give you the first one. The first one is like, is this written in a vernacular language or is it filled with jargon? And, you know, as soon as you start to ask people to refine the question and take all of the jargon out, uh, you start seeing that maybe they didn't understand exactly what they were asking. And then you get to a better question. And the, the biggest predictor of quality insights that you can use to reach and move real people is the quality of the question. And so that's, that's the biggest thing that I think people skip over because they're looking for a quick quote or they need it done or whatever. Like just spend your time on the question. And uh, if you have less time with the researchers who are going to be doing it, and then if you have less time to do the research, so be it. At least you'll be chasing after something that you know is valuable. So takeaways on the flip side for researchers, though, uh, who, like anybody who's actually doing the research. Which is everybody, um, by the way. Which is everybody. Everybody is a researcher. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the first one is uh, oftentimes you don't have the amount of time or resources that you wish that you had in order to do the research. Sometimes you're asked to turn around some kind of research in 24 hours or 48 hours because it's a new business pitch and you just found out about it or whatever it is. There's all these reasons. Sometimes you might have a week. I think one of the best tactics that people don't use enough is what we call the rogue interview. So if you're trying to pick any audience that you're trying to understand, pick a, like suppose you're, doing research on hotel guests uh, on behalf of a hotel for a pitch or for your client or whatever, and you don't have time. Some uh, uh, unfair uh, supervisor has demanded this of you in 72 hours or something like that. You don't really have time to run a nationally representative quantitative study of uh, like a deep nature with many questions. Uh, It's too quick. Uh, You you don't have time to interview uh, 72 hotel guests Uh, to understand their experience. So what you need to start doing is looking for these rogue interviews where you don't interview the customer necessarily. I mean, ideally you would if you had time, but you interview someone who knows the customer, who has seen a million of these. You find people who work at the front desks of hotels. You find the housekeeping staff. At a certain point, you identify what the key challenges of the hotel, which might be how do we get people to feel more comfortable and feel at home immediately? In which case, like who might you go talk to? Who would be an expert on that? Maybe, 
Marie Kondo, who understands about like organizing a home, maybe a hospice worker who whose job is to create like a, a quick connection and make someone feel comfortable even in the, the toughest moment that they will ever face in their lives. Uh, maybe it's a brothel owner who is in charge of creating comfort in a, what I would imagine is a super awkward situation. Uh, so like these are all people who have insights to give you and it doesn't take very long. You just have to find the person, convince them to get on the phone with you. And oftentimes these rogue interviews will give you insights that no one else has. So as a researcher, that's the first takeaway is like when I hear, when someone asks me for research, who are the rogue interviews that I can quickly get killer insights from? And then the, the second of the two takeaways that I mentioned before has to do with intimacy. And so uh, there are certain things that we look for for nonfiction employees. But the first is, are you able to feel what other people feel? And can you quickly establish intimacy with someone that is a total stranger that you've never talked to before, but you need to become really friendly with in a genuine, authentic connection because you have 45 minutes to talk to them and that's all you've got. So the, the second takeaway for researchers is practice your intimacy skills, practice talking to strangers, practice just what it is that creates a deeper connection more quickly. Maybe it's sharing something about yourself that's embarrassing. Now that's a no-no in traditional market research interviews, right? Your job is to be a clinical, like white coat wearing, uh, clipboard holding sort of person who's just recording answers. But uh, the more you can establish that connection, the more they're going to open up and tell you what they really feel. And uh, our litmus test for this, which uh, your listeners will, will experience when they do this, is that at the end of the call, the two of you have almost become like, or conversation, whatever it might be. We, we tend to like phone calls with no video for these kinds of things. But uh, whatever the, the mode or medium is, at the end of the conversation, it's almost like the two of you are coming out of a trance together and you feel like you, you want to say to them, okay, talk to you later, but you realize neither of you will ever talk to each other. And there's almost a moment of, of awkwardness, like, like saying goodbye to your 14 year old love at summer camp where, you know, you, you've had this deep, fast, uh, intimate connection and then you sort of drift apart. If, if you don't feel that at the end of your market research interview, you haven't gone deep enough. And um, it's a bittersweet sort of thing to feel, but, uh, but it's a, it's damn, a good Kenny. indicator that you've gone <laughs> deep enough, you know? That's, that's, I mean, I was just, damn, that's deep. That's, and, but that's, I mean, I guess that's the thing. You really have to get to that level of understanding and care. And again, it's up to, as you as the listener, it's up to you. Like, which one, where do you want to go? Do you want the, the gourmet or do you want the, the hot dog? Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the things, so we were talking about podcasts earlier. So I was listening to a Harvard Business Review podcast, and they said that in this, like, Zoom, <laughs> I told you to bring it back, in the Zoom negotiations, so negotiations in the virtual world, that your ability to build rapport in that first five minutes created a greater win-win outcomes. So like as a researcher in this case, and again, everybody is a researcher, that your objective is to really understand them. But if you don't have that relatedness, whatever it is, 
how's life going right now? You know, what brand of deodorant do you use? Like, why do you not want to smell? They're not going to give you those, that intimacy. They're not going to go there because they've got that wall up. So if you can break down the wall and not in a manipulative way, in a genuinely caring, concerted way, you're going to be more effective, which is ultimately the win-win outcome that we want to talk about because it's a win for them. It's a win for you because you're, if you're genuinely, if and only if, I believe, trying to genuinely solve their problem. Am I on base there, Gunny? And then I have like one big question to ask you. It's a softball big question, but I'm... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I want to pull out something else that you were saying too, which is that you can't fake that. There are a lot of things in marketing you can fake. You cannot fake that in a conversation with somebody. Um, when you are asking them to talk about something important, something... Real. Heavy, really real. Something real, which, which every consumer good touches upon something like that. Like you don't think of financial services as like a deeply personal thing, but it is. It's so, cause it's money, it's emotional. Um, so many things people buy, like one of the influences is their own sense of attractiveness. Like that's a, how are you going to talk about that without forming intimacy? So um, it, it really does have to be real. And um, I always think back to one of the conversations I had with a, uh, with one of the female escorts that we talked to for our intimacy report. And she, towards the end of the call said to me something, it was so powerful. We ended up concluding the whole research report with this quote. I don't remember exactly the words that she used, but she said that she said, you have to, she's describing her, uh, her experience as an escort. She's saying, you have to be able to see inside of somebody else. You have to be able to see the hole that is in their soul. And you have to recognize how to fill that by listening to them and by receiving them. And in that was a recipe for all of human communication, all of intimacy. And of the intimacy experts we spoke to, none of them put it that way, right? But she got to a point in that conversation where she was so comfortable and she was able to access something inside of herself that she didn't know was wisdom until she said it. And, uh, and it was brilliant. And so, um, yeah, there's just so much in these calls that you can get to that are, and in surveys too, it's not just the calls, like surveys, you, you can form deep emotional connections with people in surveys. You don't think of it that way, but you can. And, uh, but if you don't try to do it, you'll never get the insights and you'll never know what you were missing. Well, that's the power. So I, one of the things I had sort of said, the, the power of the rogue interviews, which is then the strategy part of it, like yeah. being smart and talking to people who have had the ability to synthesize so much data. So you don't need to go to the data. You need to go to the synthesizers of said data if, if and you probably should do it anyways, or could do it because I'm not going to tell you what to do, is actually get to the people who have the, all, the control of the master data. And again, try to help them help their people because you're on the same thing. Okay, last ball, last question, softball question, moving forward. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I don't get very many softball questions in my life, so I'm pretty excited to uh, fold no, this up. This is a red herring. This is not really a softball question. Uh, <laughs> given, uh, given the state of the world and given the fact that people have new holes in their hearts because of COVID, because of the changes that are happening socially, economically, just on almost every spectrum. How do you think leaders 
could best navigate the future? And I genuinely, like I was, had to really think of that question. So I'll say it again, is like given all of these changes and all of these leaders are dealing with a whole new level of, of not uncertainty, but just like the holes in the heart. How can, if there was one thing you would tell them in order to be effective in supporting their people manage the change, in supporting their families manage the change, you know, what is that? What's the answer to solving the world's problems, Kenny, right now? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I don't know that part. But what I yeah. would say is that if you are a leader in a business and part of your responsibility is understanding the people who buy your products, and that's true of B2B as, as much as it is B2C. We believe that there is a massive decoupling of the drivers of purchase. So the things that used to drive people to buy your product or use your product or be in a situation where your product is relevant, it's not that those things aren't true anymore, but because, because of the swell of emotion in general from COVID, from Black Lives Matter, from all of the conversations politically that are going on, it's incumbent upon leaders to understand not just the practical value of their product, but the symbolic value of that product as well, uh, or the symbolic value of the situation or the occasion in which that product is bought. And so, whereas you might have previously, when trying to understand customers, uh, done, uh, f- focused more on like a pricing sense, sens- sensitivity analysis or something, or, uh, you're asking people to rank their favorite brands and, and like really traditional research stuff. Now, more than before you have people, the complexities and, uh, even the silent darknesses of people's emotional lives affecting what they do, what they buy, how they feel, and what companies are uh, companies and products are relevant to them. And so if you look at your understanding of the customer, it's very rational and very, uh, I don't know, it's sort of an arithmetic approach. It's a liability. It's a liability. And I think the, the answers are different for every client and every product and every customer. But as you said, if you don't understand the shape or shapes of the holes in people's hearts, it has turned from a luxury to a liability. Mm. I got that. And it's, I mean, it's, I say it's weird. I don't had like, you just said something that's very profound. And I think out of all of that, there's the linear, which is the quantitative and qualitative nature of the value that one gets from a product or service. And then there's like the secondary and tertiary benefits. But I think underlying that and foundationally more of a driver is what you said was the silent darkness. It's the stuff that people aren't saying that the great leaders, the great marketers, the great salespeople, the great communicators find their ability to not only do it, but do it quickly and incrementally yeah. forever is going to be the difference maker in how businesses and organizations are going to be able to react 
and be successful in this dynamic environment. That's so it. And uh, the important thing about what you're saying is that this has not been fashionable in business historically, right? Go back to the, uh, I don't know, 1950s, 1960s. People are standing around in suits and conference rooms talking about the holes in people's hearts. No, you know, soft stuff. Get it out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they should have been, it's not like it's more relevant in the last 15 years than in the fifties. It's always been there. It's always been relevant, but, uh, but something about the culture, the, uh, the overly professional culture of business makes it almost an act of courage to talk about these things. And so I think that nowadays that is, as I said, is, is no longer a, a luxury. You, you've got to do it. There's no excuse anymore. There's no excuse. And as you put it, it's a liability if you don't. So the choice is yours, folks. Do it yeah. or not. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Uh, Gunny, where can people get a hold of you? Where can people learn more about what you're doing at uh, Nonfiction? Our website is nonfiction.co. Uh, that's a pretty good starting place. Um, we've got a, a report coming out in a couple of weeks that's our own sort of uh, in-house thing where we looked at the secret behavior of Americans when it comes to Spotify playlists. And we built a custom software program to download tens of thousands of Spotify playlists and then looked for insights into what we might learn about Americans. And uh, the stuff that came out of it is at, at first deeply emotional, but then has really strong impacts for business. So that should be uh, hopefully in uh, two to three weeks, the, the website for that should be up as well. Awesome. So by the time this is posted, that'll be out. Be sure to check out Gunny on LinkedIn. Look at that research. I want to know how my road trip playlist is impacting the future of Americans. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Gunny, thank you so awesome. much for today. It's been a blast. Thank you so much, Anthony. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, Gunny Scarfo, who is the co-founder of Nonfiction Research. Check out his stuff. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I think everybody, every single human being on this planet could improve with a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more compassion. And if you want to go that linear angle, just it's just good for business. So thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe. Um, my name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. And until next time. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you're in the process of renewing your strategic plan and you're looking for a framework to align your team and to create a clear vision, clear goals, and a clear roadmap on how to get there, be sure to check out our signature course that will walk you through the process that we've used to create hundreds of strategic plans successfully for organizations all over the world. You'll get instant access to all the videos and documents right away. And so whether you're planning a strategy session in three months, three weeks, or three days, you'll be able to get the most out of your meeting and have everyone be on the same page and bought into your plan. It's the exact same framework that we've used for our clients and we've packaged it in a way that you can use it easily yourself. So visit smestrategy.net slash course and you can use the code podcast for $100 off. That's smestrategy.net slash course and use the code podcast for $100 off and you'll get instant access to all of the tools to help you create your strategic plan successfully and have everybody moving forward on the same page. Once again, this is Anthony Taylor with the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you real soon.